Tonight's lecture is entitled Rambam, Ramban, and Chochmei Provence, Maimonides, Nachmanides, and the Sages of Provence. But the major protagonist of tonight, and will revolve everyone around him, is the one and the only Rambam. The Rambam's full Hebrew name is Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, whose acronym forms Rambam. In Latin, the Hebrew Ben, son of, becomes the Greek-style suffix I-D-E-S, to form the famous name Maimonides. Rambam was born in Cordova, Spain, on the day before Pesach, 1135 of the Common Era. Rambam was born, as we discussed, we discussed the Golden Age of Spain, what many scholars be, uh, claim is the end of the, the, the Goldenest Age of Spain, when Cordova would have its downfall shortly after. His father, Rabbi Maimon, was a tremendous scholar who had studied under Rabbi Yosef ibn Migash, the Rimigash. The Rimigash was the prime disciple of Rabbi Yitzhak al-Fasi, also known as the Rif. We discussed the Rif previously. He was the greatest Talmudist of Spain in North Africa of the 11th century. And the Chida, the famous sage of Jerusalem in the late 18th century, records that when the Rambam was just six years old, his father brought him to the deathbed of his teacher, the Rimigash. The Rimigash spoke to the boy, to the young Moshe ben Maimon, for a few minutes and told his father that he will be a great light and blessed him accordingly. The Rambam, for the rest of his life, said it was that blessing which enabled him to reach the great heights he did. Consequently, the Rambam, at a very young age, was able to realize his potential greatness and the intendant's responsibilities. Because the Rambam, as you will see, he was not just a great person. He became a leader. A leader takes risk. A leader does. A, re- a leader builds. A-, a leader is willing to exert himself, as I spoke about this past Shabbos, for others. The Rambam was not only the greatest sage of generations, he was the leader of generations. He was the manhig of generations. At an early age, he exhibited, as mentioned, brilliance in Torah, brilliance in Talmud. But not only brilliance in Torah and Talmud, he, from his father, he not only learned Tanakh, the books of scripture, Talmud, but he also learned mathematics and philosophy. He will, as we will discuss, was no supporter of mysticism. He didn't like poetry as well. In his writings, at a young age, he you know, we were talking about Spain was famous for its poets, both Jewish um, and Muslim. Um, but the Rambam found it was, it was not uh, based on anything logical. It was a pure invention, and therefore he mocked uh, poetry. When the Rambam was just about a bar mitzvah boy, something that we discussed in the previous lecture occurred, and that is the Lomahads came running into Spain. And they were fanatical Muslims. If you want to look at Egypt today, you want to see the Muslim Brotherhood, if they had the ability, quite frankly, they may just do the same thing. That means they would, they would go to the cops in southern Egypt today and say, you either convert, you leave the country, or you die. And that's what the Lomahads came to Cordova, which was known, we know the Cordova project is discussed, 
Cordova was the city of, of enlightenment where everyone got along, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, and told, not only the Jews, the, the Christians as well, you either convert, there's no dimmies, no more dimmies, convert, or leave the land, or die. Accordingly, the Rambam and his family left Cordova, and they traveled for about a decade plus, went to northern Spain at the time, and the Rambam encountered extreme anti-Semitism from the Christians in northern Spain. That would affect him. These were hardcore Catholics for the rest of his life. Ultimately, the family of Maimon, his his sons, went to Morocco. They went to Fez, Morocco. Now, Fez, Morocco were also under these fanatical Islamic Alomahads. But unlike Cordova, when they took over Fez, they did not give a choice of conversion, expulsion, or death. They gave the choice of conversion or death. And they left out expulsion. But a very bizarre thing happened. They said, we'll close our eyes, you can do what you want in private. You had to ostensibly convert in Fez. And so what happened is you had practically the entire population of northern Morocco, and Fez was the center at, at that time, convert to Islam, and in secret, or not, such, not so secret, be practicing pious Talmudic Jews. So you literally had Muslim Rosh Hashivas, Muslim rabbis, and you had yeshivas of Muslims in Fez. So the Rambam and his father went to Fez and pretended on the outside of Muslims. Of course, they lived completely, totally Jewish lives. So much so that Rabbi Maimon wrote a very famous letter which made waves throughout North Africa. It was a letter in Arabic. And in this letter he urged all the Jews to remain loyal to their faith despite all the hardships. He brought a lot of historical precedent and to study the Torah and to practice mitzvahs and to pray three times a day. However, this dual life of an external Muslim existence and an internal Jewish existence um, proved to be increasingly dangerous. Um, Maimon himself was well known and the young Moshe ben Maimon, the Rambam, was increasingly and steadily growing and authorities began to acquire who was this young Jewish progeny. He was even um, accused by an informer of spreading and propagating Judaism, which was a serious offense. Um, and if it would not have been for a family friend, a poet and a theologian, Abu al-Arab al-Mushya, um, he would have shared the fate of his good friend Yehuda ibn Shoshan, who would have been executed for exactly that crime shortly before. So, in the year 1165, the Rambam's family, when Rambam was 30 years old, escaped Fez and traveled to Israel. They came to Acre, um, Akko, and then they went to Jerusalem. Of course, Israel at the time was not Muslim. Israel was under the Crusader Kingdom, which he spoke a couple lectures ago about. And However, after visiting the graves, the Rambam says the, the greatest moment of his life was going to Jerusalem, going to the, to, to, to the Harabayas, going to Hebron, the Rambam decided to travel to a country which was, is currently 
heavily in the news, but at that time, that country was considered the United States of America, the land of enlightenment, the land of freedom, the land of wealth, and that country was Egypt. And the Rambam originally settled in Alexandria, which historically had a huge Jewish community, which we discussed um, several weeks ago, which was destroyed in the time of Trajan, but ultimately moved to Fastat. Fastat is called today Old Cairo. It's part of this huge city of Cairo, but Fastat was Old Cairo. And during the first few years of Rambam's, of the Rambam's existence in Cairo, he met with misfortune after misfortune. First and foremost, his father, Maimon, passed away. Then his wife passed away. Then he lost two children. And finally, his brother David, because the Rambam, until his mid-30s, his whole focus was Torah. He was, you know, he, he, he dabbled in the sciences, dabbled in philosophy, but his main occupation was the study of Torah. And he already started his works, uh, his, his famous uh, works of, on, on Torah subjects, which we'll discuss in detail shortly. And his brother David, who was a very, very, very affluent, wealthy dealer in jewels, supported him. It was a Yesachar Zulin. It was a partnership that with a brother supported a brother. David went on a journey in the Indian Sea with not only his fortune, but the Ramam's extended family's fortune, and other people who gave him lots of money to invest, and perished at sea. Right? So basically, the Rambam's fortune had been wiped out. His beloved brother had died. Look at source number one. This was a letter discovered in the, Cairo, the famous Cairo Ganesa. This is the Rambam. It happens to be, you were talking about the, one of the greatest individuals in the Middle Ages, just... If a person ever thinks that people are angels, listen to the Rambam himself. The greatest misfortune that has befallen me during my entire life, worse than anything else, was the demise of the saints, may his, blessed, may his memory be blessed, who drowned in the Indian Sea, carrying much money belonging to me, him, and to others, and left me with a little daughter and a widow. On the day I received that terrible news, I fell ill and remained in bed for about a year, suffering from a sore boil fever and depression, and was almost given up. About eight years have passed, but I am still mourning and unable to accept consolation. And how should I console myself? He grew up on my knees. He was my brother. He was my student. With the death of David, his brother, the Ramam's life has to take a turn. He had lost, he was now impoverished. He had no means of support, and his whole life savings was gone. The Rambam was brilliant beyond belief. I can just tell you as somebody who learns his works daily, pretty much, and you look at the textual works alone, it's, it's, there's no one who can get close to it in our generation. The scope of his works is mind-boggling. The Rambam, in his youth, had enjoyed sciences, and he decided to be a doctor. The Rambam, of course, strongly felt, and this is a theme in many of his writings, that it is forbidden to make money as a profession, as a rabbi. Okay? Now, by the 14th century, 15th century, even the Sephardic lands, they did not follow the Rambam in this, and they paid rabbis, otherwise it wouldn't exist. But the Rambam held the purely, in theory, Talmudic law, 
that you should not make money from Torah. Torah is God's work. You shouldn't make money for it. Okay? So after several years of practice, the Rambam became extremely popular and well-known, not only in Egypt, as we'll see, in the medical world, but throughout the world. A lot of it, he was a prolific writer. He wrote on all, kind, all kinds of books, which we'll discuss. And the Rambam ended up being the doctor of one of Saladin, Sultan Saladin, who we discussed, we discussed the Crusades, who beat back the Second Crusade and who reconquered Jerusalem, who was the most powerful Muslim leader of the time. He was the doctor of one of the visors, and he was in Saladin's palace. By 1185, he was the doctor of the Sultan himself, and eventually the of Saladin, but Saladin's son, Afadal. According um, to the Arabic historian Al-Kite, the Rambam declined a similar offer, to, which was by the king of the Franks in Ascalon, i.e. King Richard I of England, who asked him to be the chief doctor of England. So if you remember, if you talked about remember the Crusades, King Richard I was certainly no friend of the Jews. Eventually, King Richard I would take on Saladin and lose. But... This is always the case. If you look at Europe at the time, you have these Jewish doctors, Don Isaac of Barmanel, at the time of Spanish Inquisition, which would be the next lecture, is the, the Minister of the Treasury. Now, the Minister of Treasury in, in, in Spain was much more than Ben Bernanke is today to, to the Federal Reserve. The Minister of Treasury literally was the bottom line in Spain after the king. He ran the Treasury. And at the same time, he expelled all the Jews in Spain. So the fact that King Richard I would have taken the Rambam... It's one of those bizarre events in history, but the Rambam refused. And the Rambam wrote many uh, books. The renowned Arabic physician Abid al-Latif al-Baghdad confessed that he wanted to visit Cairo just to meet this famous Moshe bin Maimon. In the latest greatness of the physician was no less recognized by, I'm sure you all know Arab poetry, um, al-Sa'id ibn Surat al-Muk, who sang in ecstatic prose, Galen's art heals only the body, but Abu Imram Rambam's the body and the soul. With his wisdom he could heal the sickness of ignorance. If the moon would submit to his art, he would deliver her of her spots at the full time of the full moon. Cure her of her periodic defects. And at the time of her conjunction, save her from her waning. Okay? We'll see how... uh, great of a physician he was soon we just look at some of the works that he wrote because many of Maimani's works would be internationally used they were the textbooks of his time and we'll see with philosophy Maimani's was of the middle ages the most known Jew he was quoted from the philosophers to the theologians to the doctors Maimani's name was everywhere Okay, and the Maimani's Rambam had a very full day. In a famous letter, we'll see Ibn Tibbin, Shmuel Ibn Tibbin was his translator. He wanted to meet the Rambam. The Rambam corresponded with him. And he asked, could he meet him? And the Rambam says to him, he doesn't have time to have a personal meeting. He describes his daily routine. They would find the antechambers filled with Jew, Gentiles and Jews. He would go to heal them and write prescriptions for the evenings all the way till late evening. We'd come to his house, leave the sultan's palace, and find more people waiting outside his house for medical cures. If you think a doctor has a beeper today, the Rambam was 24-7. 
Nevertheless, despite the demands of being perhaps the most famous doctor of his time, the Rambam became the greatest scholar of his time. He became eventually the Nagid, the head of all Egyptian and Sephardic Jewry, and a prolific writer. Okay? During his, writing, his wanderings, even in his youth, he engaged in writing his first great work, which was his commentary on the Mishnah. And at the tender age of 33 years old, now remember this is before computers, before typewriters, you have to hand like this. The Rambam wrote a classic commentary on the Mishnah, the Pirsha Mishnah, which is famous even until this day. The Rambam, is, people claim he was a descendant of Rabbi Huda Nasi, the, the editor of the Mishnah. And with the commentary of the Mishnah at 33 years old, the Rambam became viewed as one of the greatest scholars of his age. When people saw the work, especially his introductions, which became famous, the Rambam became an internationally known scholar, and you see much correspondence going back and forth. And at a young age already, you see the Rambam hand by hand. I remember I once heard of David Feinstein Shlita, so he said that his father, Moshe Feinstein, had a Moshe become so great, it wasn't just the broad knowledge that he had. He said that after the Holocaust, when he had all of the Oguna cases, all the serious divorce cases, well, if they needed it to get a divorce because the husbands were missing or the wives were missing, no one knew where people was, could they get remarried? And this is a very serious area of Jewish law because the consequences are mamzerim. You could have bastards, you could have adultery ramifications. The one sage who really took it upon himself to deliberate this was Moshe Feinstein. No one, everyone else was scared. How are we supposed to know what happened with Jews in Poland and Hungary and Russia? Where do they end up? Maybe they survived. There were survivors. Maybe this was a, was a survivor. There are serious ramifications of Jewish law. Moshe was the one to take responsibility. Likewise, the Rambam, at a very young age, wrote his Igeres HaTeman, his letter to the Jews of Teman, and his letter Igeres HaShmad, and his, likewise a letter to the Jews of Fez, Morocco, both of them telling communities that were under the gun of Muslim fundamentalists who were ostensibly practicing Muslims, but in secret practicing as Jews, that you are okay. Because they had been told by a great sage, Shmuel ben Eli, who was the greatest Rosh Hashiv in Baghdad at the time, you have left the Jewish camp for good. That the second that you took on a Muslim lifestyle, at least for the outside, you have left the Jewish camp. And it was the Rambam who said, absolutely not, absolutely not. And the Rambam, of course, experienced it. The Rambam said that, first of all, of course, if you can get out of these countries, get out. But if you're there, first of all, Islam is not considered idolatry. They believe in one God. And second of all, if you're really practicing Judaism, it's okay, under the circumstances. The Yemenite community was, was for the generations were so grateful that they had in their Kaddish a special praise for the Rambam. Okay? Um, in fact, the Yemenite community to this day, they don't even use the Shulchan Aruch. All they use is the Rambam. Okay? Next, the Rambam wrote his Mishnah Torah. We're going to deal a little bit more with the Mishnah Torah later. But the Mishnah Torah, which was his magnum opus, also called the Yad Chazaka. Yad Yud Dalit is 14. Right, the 14 books on all of Jewish law. He systematically um, 
explained, elucidated, clarified, codified all of Jewish law in 14 books. The work, uh, I, I don't want to say too much, I'll embellish in a few minutes, is probably the most profound work in the past 800 years. And lastly, the last famous work of the Rambam in 1190 was his Mora his Guide to the, the Perplexed, which would eventually embroil him and his descendants in controversy, which we'll discuss as well. And as of 1177, the Rambam, Maimonides, became the Nagir, again, the head of um, Egyptian Jewry, actually the last chief rabbi of Egypt, just so everyone should know, is still alive and well today. He's actually the head of Sephardic Jewry today. His name is Avadi Yosef. He was the last chief rabbi. He left Egypt, Egypt in 1948 when he basically started imprisoning all the Jews. When Egypt went to war, they could talk about current events. Every time Egypt went to war in 48 and 67 and 73, um, the Jews were in extreme danger. I mean, they threw Jews in jail. And forgetting the Israelis who they were fighting against, the Jews in Egypt were in immediate danger. They were in the, they were in the belly of the pig itself. The Rambam's uh, last years, he was, were, he was ill. He died in Fastat in the 20th of Tevis, 1204. And in Fastat in Old Cairo, not only the Jewish community, but the Muslim community publicly mourned the death of Maimonides for three days. In Jerusalem, a general fast was, decla- was declared. A portion of the Tochacha, of course, of the rebuke, of a serious portion of the Torah, uh, was read. And uh, the Haftorah about the Ark of the Covenant being taken by the Philistines. His body was taken to Tiberias. Anyone goes to Tveria, can see the, um, the, 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 the uh, grave of the Ramam. And it, at that time forward, it became a place of pilgrimage. Of course, we're not, like, we don't, we never pray to any tzaddik, to any saint. We pray in their merit. We don't, we're not going to saints like uh, certain other religions and they pray to the saints, you know, answer me, we don't pray to human beings, we pray to God. But we believe that where a tzaddik is buried, it's a holy place. And therefore we pray to God in holy places. We go to the coastal, it's a holy place. We go to Hebron, the cave of the four, of, of, of our Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah, and we pray because it's a holy place. But now we don't. We never pray to sages. The Rambam and his second wife had one child, Avraham, who was recognized as a great scholar, and he himself became the core physician at the age of eighteen. He wrote a commentary on on Tanakh, on, on the books on Chumash. We have Bereshis and Shmos. Genesis and Exodus still in existence. He also wrote a tremendous ethical work, which you only have a little bit left. It's called Hamaspik, the Oiv de Hashem, that provides for the servants of God. And what we have left is, 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 is breathtaking in its depth. And the family of the Rambam were the Nagids, were the heads of, of, of Sephardic Jewry for four generations straight. The Rambam, as mentioned, wrote several works, the commentary of the Mishnah, his Sefer HaMitzvos, which um, enlisted all 613 commandments and explained them. His letter of martyrdom is Gersh Shmad, which he wrote to the Jews of Fez, where he was himself at one point, when they were accused of being no longer Jews. His Mishnah Torah, his magnum opus, 
his guide to the perplexed. He had numerous responsa. He also had a treatise of logic which he wrote at the age of 17. The Ramam also had 10 medical works which were the textbooks of the generations to come. What were that? He had something called the Extracts. By the way, there's a book by Fred Rosner, a very prominent doctor in New York, who has all these ten works together in English. Um, I think the art school of Feldham was published for, but maybe a secular publisher put it out. Extracts from Galen. He had a commentary on the aphorisms of Hippocrates. Medical aphorisms of, of Moshe, also called Pirkei Moshe. He had a treatise on hemorrhoids which discusses also uh, digestion food. He had a treatise on cohibition, how to stimulate, how to maintain, you know, all about that. Treatise on asthma, right, which he actually, which is remarkable, somebody who has mild asthma. And you read the Rambam, he talks about climates and diets and their effects on asthma and the need for clean air. He had a treatise on poisons and their antidotes. This was an early toxic toxicology textbook which was popular for hundreds of years he had a regiment of health the Rambam had a, a diet and a, a way to live he had a discourse on the explanation of fits which was also which was a, another book of how to healthy living and lifestyle and he had a glossary of drug names and we had, which he had lists of drugs in Arabic, Greek, Syrian, Persian Berber and Spanish Okay? This was besides writing the greatest Jewish books of generations. <laughs> this is a thing that he did on the side, and besides the fact that he was a doctor all day. Okay? Treating patients of the Sultan and the Sultan's palace. Okay? His first work was his treatise on logic, which he wrote in his 20s, uh, which basically gives the fundamentals and essentials of Aristotle, who he calls his first master in philosophy, and Al-Faribi, who is his second master in philosophy. Um, the Rambam, already at that, in that work, does what he'll do in all his works. He explains the terminologies that the common man can understand it, and even the deep scholar will get them as well. His magnum opus was the Mishnah Torah. Look at source number two. Why did he write the Mishnah Torah? At this time, the sufferings of our people have increased. The pressing need of the moment supersedes every other consideration. The wisdom of the wise has vanished, and the wisdom of our learned men is concealed. Hence the commentaries, compilations of laws, and response, responsa of the Goonim, those 6th to ninth century sages we discussed previously, which they thought were easy to understand, have in our times become difficult to understand. And there are only a few individuals who are able to comprehend them properly. Now remember, the Rambam could have said, I'll study to myself, but the Rambam was the leader of the Jewish people. For this reason, I, Moshe ben Maim and the Sephardi, have girded my loins and relying on the help of the Almighty, blessed be He, have thoroughly studied all their works and decided to compile the results derived from them as to what is prohibited and what is permitted, what is clean and what is unclean, and all the other laws of the Torah, all in clear language and concise style, so that the entire oral Torah will be systematically arranged for all. 
I, sh- I shall not quote the questions and answers or the differences of opinion discussed, <coughs> but only the laws themselves in a clear and succinct manner in accordance with the conclusions derived from all these treatises and compilations existed since the time of Rabbi Huda Anasi, the editor of the Mishnah, until the present day. So that all the laws shall be accessible to young and old, whether they are biblical precepts, precepts or enactments by the sages or prophets. This is my mind, the Rambam, in his introduction to his work, the Mishnah Torah. Remember, in Yeshiva we always call Talmud, the Yam HaTalmud, the Seer of Talmud, because things that you have to analyze this way and that way, you can bring a proof here and a proof there, and the depth of Talmud is remarkable. As somebody who has a little of experience in reading secular law, there's no comparison. You know, you read black little law, you, you, it, it's, it's clear-cut, you have this way, that way. The Talmud, it's so nuanced. There's so much hair-splitting, and it's so diverse, and purposely so, because the novice is not meant to, to go into the depths of Talmud. We're supposed to work on it. The Rambam codifies that. Without the Rambam, you had commentaries, but you had to be a tremendous scholar to know, to come to bottom line conclusions, or you had to ask somebody else. The Rambam codified the whole thing, but not only did he codify it, the, the, the challenge of Maimonides is to understand why he codified it in this way. And many yeshivas today, their whole focus is, if you learn brisk yeshiva, anyone heard of brisk yeshiva? The main text after the Gemara is the Rambam, is Maimonides. They focus on the Rambam. One of the brisker uh, children, his name is Yosef Bear Salavechik, was the Rav in Yeshiva University. His whole shir was also a Rambam based shir. But with every yeshiva you go to, the Rambam is bread and butter. And the challenge of the Rambam is to understand why he was putting things where. Why is this codified in this set of laws? Why is this word used? Because the Rambam was succinct and he was extremely careful about terminology. The Rambam's Mishnah Torah, which was the forerunner of our Shulchan Aruch, of our code of Jewish law, um, did initially meet with opposition. And there are two main reasons for this opposition. First of all, as the Rambam Maimani says, he didn't quote where he's coming from. The Ravid, who is his greatest critic, we'll discuss shortly who, who the Ravid was, says, who does he think he is? Moses? Moshe Rabbeinu is going to tell me a Torah, not tell me why this law is this way, this way, this way? That's, how, that's the Ravid's first comment on the Rambam. Secondly, people were concerned that the Rambam was going to cut out the study of Talmud. Basically, the Rambam gave you a done deal. You have to, the black letter law to an extent. Maybe because of the Mishnah Torah, there will be less Talmudic study. But the Rambam's Sefer ultimately became totally accepted. So much so that when Rabbi Yosef Cairo who we'll discuss in, in two lectures from now, or three, um, wrote his Shulchan Aruch Code of Jewish Law, and the Yemenites and a couple other Middle Eastern communities did not want to take it, and they wanted to stick to their tradition of only following the Maimonides, and people said, well, we're all doing this. Rabbi Yosef Kar himself said, who would dare force communities who follow the Rambam, solely the Rambam, because Rabbi Yosef Kairo's Shulchan Aruch Ninety percent of the, the law is like the Rambam. I mean, maybe ninety-five percent even. I mean, the bottom line is the Rambam is the greatest um, posek, and they're all following him. Um, who would dare force communities to follow the Rambam exclusively to follow any other decisor, early or late? The Rambam is the greatest of all the halachic decisors, 
and all the communities of the land of Israel and all of the Arab Arabistan, the Arab world, that's the Middle Eastern Arab world, and the Maghreb, which is the North African Arab world, practiced according to his word and accepted him as the rabbi. Consistent with the Rambams, with Maimani's idea to systematically explain all of Torah, all that he systematically gave the 13 principles of faith. Now, Judaism is not a very dogmatic religion. Now, we have certain dogmas, but we're not, we don't have many dogmas. We have many commandments, we have certain fundamentals of faith, but what makes somebody not Jewish? That would be, was not clearly say, the Rambam brought Talmudic and biblical proofs for his 13 principles of faith. You can look at source number 3, which is a summary of the Rambam's Amani's 13 principles of faith, existence of God, God's unity, God's spirituality, incorporality, God's not physical whatsoever, God's eternity, God alone should be the object of worship, as I mentioned, you can't go to a tzaddik's grave and pray to a tzaddik, you can only pray to God, you can't pray to an angel that God should answer you, you can't pray to God, revelation through God's prophets, that we believe is revelation, the preeminence of Moshe amongst uh, the prophets, number eight, that God's law is given on Mount Sinai, uh, number nine, the immutability of the, the Torah as God's law means that that will preclude Christianity, Islam, or any other religion. Right? The Torah cannot be changed. God's foreknowledge of human its actions, reward of good and retribution of evil, the coming of the Jewish Messiah and the resurrection of the dead. Now the Rambam himself, when he says this, he says, let me explain to you one thing. These verses that we're gonna show, he shows us, there's not one verse in the Torah that's any more holy than another verse. All of the Torah is equal. But these 13 fundamentals of beliefs means that if you reject this, you are not a category of believer. This is bottom line. Meaning you could even transgress laws, but you're a believer. You're just a tra- but this is the dogma. This is what it means to be a believing Jew. Many Jews daily or weekly say over the Rambam's 13 principles of faith. What you have in the Siddur, by the way, is a shortened version. It's not what the Rambam wrote. The Rambam's 13 principles of faith are very, very much more long-winded, where he spells out his proofs. That's just like we did over here. They're the actual, a larger summary of those 13 principles. The successors of the Rambam for the 13th and 15th century, Nachmanides, um, Yosef Albo, the Akedah is they disagreed. Some of them held there were three beliefs, and they focused on belief in God, creation or revelation, um, and providence, divine providence or retribution. Now, some rabbis tried to say that they're just saying a shortened version, but they also believe in 13, but others disagreed. Others said that the Rambam, especially Chastai Kreskis and his student Rabbi Yosef Albo, he shouldn't have written down 13 principles because it's mitigating the other parts of the Torah. Put 13, that these are more important. These, um, moreover, they said how, that these things don't, if you don't believe this, you're not any more of a heretic and you don't believe in other parts of Torah. Okay? Others had more than 3 or 13. Um, for example, the great sage of southern France, Yedida Panini, had um, 35. Uh, some had 25 there were different things but ultimately speaking mainstream uh, Judaism from about the 15th century to our own have accepted the Rambams as final and authoritative so much so that of course the 13 principles 
of faith are brought in all the Sidurim. And not only that, there was a famous poem written by a Roman poet we sing every Shabbos and Shul. And if you look at that little piece of liturgy, it's the Rambam's 13 Principles of Faith, and that is Yigdal. Yigdal lo Kimchai is the Rambam's 13 Principles of Faith. It's a poet poem which incorporates the 13 Principles of Faith. And all little boys and girls and all adults sing it every Shabbos. Most people don't know what they're singing. They're just singing along. Yigdal Kimchai. But really, what we're really singing is the 13 Principles of Faith. The Rambam's, perhaps to the Gentile world, um, most famous, and what would be the most provocative, and eventually cause the greatest controversy, was his Moranavuchim, his guide to the perplexed, which is a sustained treatment of Jewish thought, practice, which seeks to resolve the conflict between religious knowledge and the secular. Okay? The Rambam was heavily influenced by the neo-Platonized Aristotelianism that had taken root in Islamic circles in his time. He is heavily quoted by all, from Thomas Aquinas, who quotes the Rambam many times in his commentary on the sentences, to Baruch Spinoza, to Leibniz and Newton on the left, to all of the greatest sages. In fact, many of the scholastic, early Catholic scholastic philosophers Albert the Great, Don Scotus, Don Scotus is one of the 35, uh, I, I what's the doctors of the Catholic Church, um, so is Thomas Aquinas, they all quote the Rambam. They looked at the Rambam as in his scholastic, Rambam used a scholastic method and they would quote him as a philosopher theologian. Okay, so you had the doctors quoting Rambam for his medical works and you had the philosophers and theologians quoting him as well. To the Rambam, to my mind, there is no contradiction between the truth that God has revealed and the truth which the human mind, a power uh, derived from God, has discovered. The Rambam tried to systematically, remember, uh, the, the, the law, Aristotle ruled in his time. Aristotle was the thought of the day. It's, it's almost for, you know, imagine going in America, okay? and not believing in the constitution of democracy. Now, usually there are people, but they're radicals. They're not the mainstream. They're, not, they're usually, you know, you have this guy in Arizona being one of them. They're not normal people. If you grew up in America, it's in the air. It's in your, in your education. Everyone around you believes in democracy. People may have different viewpoints. You know, people may hold the constitutions. You can make it up as you go along. Or the constitutions this way. But everyone believes in theory in the general principles of democracy, liberty, uh, and, and because that's what we, we breathe in the air. Well, in the Middle Ages, the intelligentsia believed in Aristotle. That was the reality which they lived and worked in. And for the upper classes of Judaism, it created a rift. There was a rift. And this will be all of the theologians, not only in Judaism, but everyone's going to try to reconcile the two. Kind of like today, you have science, not philosophy. Philosophy is dead today. You know, who reads philosophy anymore? I mean, most people, even in the universities, are Ill- completely illiterate of the great philosophic works. But science is. You know, so science people try to reconcile science and faith. Well, the, for the Rambam, try to do that with the philosophy of his day. And the first thing he did was he attacked people who believed in the anthropomorphisms of the Bible. 
And he systematically went through every single one and said, this is just, God doesn't feel, and God doesn't have hands, and God doesn't have feet, and God doesn't get angry, and went through everyone and said, anyone who does believe that is a heretic. Now, Ramam is not the first one to say that these statements are anthropomorphic. The Kuzari, Rabbi Huda Levi said that. Rabbi Sadi, in fact, that's, that's, that was the mainstream thought. But Ramam said, that mistake, it's not just a mistake. You missed the boat. That's against the 13 principles of faith. So the Rambam starts his Mordavukim going through this. And then he tries to reconcile all of the miracles. Now, the Rambam in his introduction, when he warns his student that you obviously can't have like Aristotle, that everything is a result of fixed laws because then you have no supernatural. But the Rambam tries to explain how miracles and how the creation worked. Moreover, the Rambam um, tried rational reasons for all the mitzvahs. He tried to give rational, logical reasons for mitzvahs, for commandments which sometimes are inherently belief in God mitzvahs. Some things, do not murder, do not steal. A lot of things make sense. I can explain it on a rational basis. Others are more difficult just to say that God wants to do this and we don't truly grasp the reason why. The Rambam, Maimonides, tried to explain them. This work, to say the least, especially his heavy, heavy reliance on Aristotle, which although in the intelligentsia of Europe and the Arabic world was very common, think, you know, Williamsburg for a second. Okay, now Williamsburg, they appreciate democracy, but they have a different viewpoint of America than other people do. It's a very insular society. The Jewish people remember this. They were a 99% literate population in a population of Europe and the Arab world. In Europe was less than 1% literacy. In the Arab world, it was probably 2 or 3%. Okay, the average Jewish kid was davening out of davening, saying, learning texts. Jerome said it's in the 5th century, the, the author of the, of the Vulgate. He, he's amazed that the Jewish children have universal literacy and they know the text better than our scholars. So you're talking about people, they, didn't, they weren't impressed by Aristotle, and they weren't impressed with the people around them. Halton, this Maimonides, is quoting this Aristotle at length, like he's the great master. They were not going to take it easy. Now, the Torah called the Jewish people, Am Kesheh a stubborn people. It's a two-edged sword. Because being stubborn can cause too much, too much conservatism, but it also is the greatest block of assimilation because the Jewish people don't accept too easily. We're not gullible people. You know, somebody tells us, believe this because of this. Well, no, Jews, Jews, you know, Jews aren't that. We're stuck. We, have, we have a viewpoint. We want to know, where, who are you to come change it? Who, who are you? Who do you think you come? We're here first. We know what's going on. This Am Kshayorif, if you look at the great scholars, there's always a reluctance and a hesitancy What's, what are your intentions? What are you, where are you coming from? This is in our, fa- in, in, in our fiber of our being, which has its pluses very much as well. Even though the Torah says, says that sometimes we're too stubborn, which could also, every plus can have a negative, but it also has a very big plus. And when the Ramah uh, came out, it would cause several problems. The first, though, was not about the Aristotle, because immediately the major contention on the work was his opinion on the world to come and resurrection of the dead. Because religious Jews, of course, and what Rambam himself, Maimonides himself, codifies in his 13 principles, believe in the resurrection of the dead and the future world to come. The Rambam, though, said that in the world to come, 
we don't come alive with bodies, but we are this pure intellect, this spirit without a body that does not eat, does not sleep, does not walk on the world. There are more than one biblical verse which talks about the resurrection of the dead. Um, and this immediately caused hostile criticism of Raiva the Third, which we'll discuss when we speak of Provence, who commented on his Mishatura, and the Yad Ramah, the Dine of Toledo, Spain, Rabbi Mer Halevi Abulafia. Okay? And they said, Who are you and where are you coming from to say that you don't come alive, resurrection of the dead, as a body? And of course, this would have been a debate before the Rambam, and people took this great sage Rambam and said, he backs us, like he's the tiebreaker. He, the Rambam says this, we're right. We are right. We have now won the debate. And they said no. And they started going back and forth. Eventually the Rambam wrote his Maimar Tchis Hames, and his trees on resurrection, where he explained as follows. Now, the Rambam's approach is backed by Urbius of Karo and many, but not it's still a matter of debate. It has no practical halakhic uh, barrier. But it does, it does affect um, certain things of faith. What the Ram says like this. Until the Ram's time, people said there is the time of Messiah. There's the world to come. Ram said, brought proofs from Daniel and from a lot of other things, a third approach. And that is, there is a time of the Messiah. The Messiah will come. Okay, the Messiah is one of the 13 principles of faith. To perfect the world. This world is going to have perfection. Right? That the, which means everything in life is going to an end. Even today, starting in Egypt, it's part of the Messianic process. Now, we want Messianic process can happen numerous permutations. There are dozens of ways which it can happen. The better we are, the easier, the quieter, quicker, the sweeter it will be. But the Messiah can happen in numerous ways, and the world has a purpose that it will be a Messiah. Says the Rambam, at a certain period after the Messianic era, there will be something called resurrection of the dead. That will be because the human beings can't be perfect, even in the physical body, if they live already. So everyone will uh, come alive to see the temple, the resurrection. But after resurrection, that is a temporary existence. Because after that, there is a great day of judgment. Day of judgment. We're, we're judged not only in our, our lifetimes, but our, our ramifications for all future generations. Right? If we excite somebody, if we edify and educate somebody, they don't just affect them affect all the future generations and the vice versa as well there is our deeds have ripples throughout the generations and then there will be the oil and haba at the end there will be the world to come at the end okay that's how the Ram explained it it was not the typical approach there's still some who disagree and it's say the ultimate world to come we will have physical bodies but that um, was not about the character of the Rambam it was about his ideas and at the end of the day, people lived with it. People said the Ram was a new approach, or a different approach, not what we always thought, perhaps, but he had strong proofs, he had many advocates that this is what the texts are saying. But the main objections, and what which would light the flames of fights and controversy in both Europe and Arabia, was to his Aristotelian approach to commandments and to miracles. The most rigorous medieval critic of the Rambam's Mora was Chastai Kreskis in his Or Hashem. Now Chastai Kreskis bucked the trend. Not only did he attack the Rambam for using Aristotle um, to prove Jewish concepts, 
But he rejected Aristotle completely, on completely secular matters as well. In fact, if you ever read uh, the works of Martin Gilbert, Oxford historian, world-famous Oxford historian, Martin Gilbert, he credits, now I can't verify, but he credits, credits with affecting the, the mind thought of many, many, many Protestant and Catholic early Renaissance thinkers who began to, re- to reject Aristotle, they were reading Crescus's works, and he was the major influence upon them. Okay? Crescus, though, lived generations after the Ramam, and, and, and he never attacked the Ramam as a person. He attacked his use of Aristotle. But in the Ramam's life, they would not be only as a person, there would be ad hominem attacks against the Ramam. Because... When the Ramam wrote the Moran of Wuchen in 1190, he was the head of Sardis Jury. He was the zenith of the career. He had written already the Mishnah Torah, his Yad HaChazak, which was this codification of Jewish law, which was remarkable. And yet he wrote this work, which was against the grain of what we would believe. Who's, who are we giving so much credence to Aristotle for trying to explain everything on a rational basis? So his motive will become controversial in his life, but it's posthumously where it really becomes controversial. And where is the center of controversy? That is in, and I'm, I'm going to go back to my disclaimer. From a couple of weeks ago, I take no blame for my French pronunciations over here, okay? still see some Frenchies. So I take no blame in Provence, or Provence, how do you want to say it? That in... The, the Chachmei Provence, which were the Jewish rabbis of Provence, now we're talking about the whole southern France, um, was a great center in the 12th, 13th centuries. Okay, Binyamin of Tudila, who was that valiant Jewish traveler, the Marco Polo of the Jews, who literally wrote about Jewish communities throughout North Africa, the Middle East, Europe, even into dark Africa. He wrote about Ethiopian Jews in the 12th century. Benjamin Tudila, when he describes Provence, this area of southern France, he says they were very few in number, but great, great, great in scholarship. Provence was not only the southern France, which included Marseille, Narbonne, Lunil, Montpellier. It also included the city... Is that bad? Is that pretty good? Not bad, okay. For a Yankee. Um, it also included cities which at the time formed part of northern Spain, such as Perpignan. Um, so, and, uh, in some ways, of the Jewish traditions of Catalonia were closer to southern France than to Spain itself. Okay? In matters of halacha, of Jewish law, th- this area of Provence was a mix of what we call the North France, Germany, Ashkenazic tradition, and the Spanish, Svartic tradition. Okay? But the sages of Provence were not only great scholars, they were also the heirs of the style of Torah study of the Geonim of Babylonia. They were fierce defenders of tradition. And many, many of the works in the works that come out of Provence, it's like, you know, Brene Brock. You have to imagine, it was beyond their numbers. And many of these works were protecting the original scholars on their critiques. Now, this is a war of Torah. These are not, they're not, they're not, these are not ad hominem texts. These were, the text is, no, the text is this. And don't start with this scholar because it really is the way he said it. And these were, I mean, you look at the, 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 the works that will come out of there, and you'll see that's exactly what they did very often. 
Who are some of these sages? There's Moshe Hadarshan, who Rashi quotes from extensively. He was the founder of the Torah community of Provence. There is Yosef Kimchi's sons David and Moshe, who are great biblical commentators. David Kimchi is also known as the Radak. Anyone who learns Tanakh, oh, there you the Radak. Okay, learns Radak. The Radak would be one of the greatest defenders of Maimonides when the attack started. In fact, he went city to city, and he's old. He's an old man to protect the Rambam. It's another Rambam is right. There was Avram ben Yitzchak of Nervon, also known as the Eshkol, or Rive the Second, who was the head of the community. There's Aaron ben Jacob HaKohen, who was the Orches Chaim. On Lunil, there was Zechariah Halevi Migrona, the Balam Ur. Avram um, ben Natan Hayarchi. Yarchi, what's Yarchi? In, in, in Hebrew, Yarach is moon. So Lunil is the French, Lunil is from the French word moon. So if you look at Jewish scholars from Lunil, they'll always say Hayarchi. They have Hayarchi from the moon. Lunil is called uh, from moon. So, so there is Arminas and Hayarchi who are Hamanic, and there is Yonas and Hakon of Lunil who is an avid supporter of the Rambam. In Montpellier, there was Shlomo Minhahar. Months Montpellier on the mount. So when you have sages from Montpellier, they always have Minhahar from the mount. Avram Minhahar, Shlomo Minhahar. Minhahar means in French, from the mount. And in, in, in one area of, of southern France, it was Avram bin David Arrive the third, who wrote his extensive glasses on the Rambam, very, very critical of the Rambam, in abrasive language. First of all, Arrive was 20 years o- older, and he didn't uh, like many of the conclusions of the Rambam. Now, the fact is that the Rambam had tremendous respect for the person, because... You don't sit there for years writing a commentary and a critique of somebody you don't take seriously. He took the Rambam very, very seriously. Okay? And many of the later works are trying to answer the Rambam, such as Rabbi Yosef Karo's Kesef Mishnah, against the Ravid's critiques. Other works, such as the Magid Mishnah, do the exact same thing as that. There was a Menachem Meiri, who wrote a commentary called the Beit HaBechira, which was one of the most co- important commentaries on the Talmud. Interestingly enough, many of the Meiri's uh, explanations on the Talmud we had lost because they were confiscated by the church. And only in the late 19th century did we get it back by sending people into churches in France to hand copy those old manuscripts because we, they were not in circulation. Okay? There was a famous family of Ibn Tibbin who translated Maimonides' works, who translated the Kuzari, all these works were in Arabic, and who translated um, Rav They wrote in Arabic because they wanted to hit the masses. So they translated that, that work. And there was Shlomo Menahar, there was Shlomo Menahar. Shlomo Menahar was one of the greatest sages of the 13th century. And when Ibn Tibbin translated his Mornavuchim, because they didn't speak Arabic in Provence, it was under Christian France, even though it was a separate district, when he was translated into Hebrew, he read the work. He was not a scholar of philosophy per se. But as he started to read the work, he started to scratch his head longer and longer. And nobody would start up with this Rambam. But when he saw this work, he said, no way, this is becoming widespread amongst the Jewish people. 30 years after his death, he was a world-famous 
to the Gentiles as a philosopher, as a theologian, as a doctor, to the Jews as, as the foremost legal scholar and codifier. And now this work is going to be the, the, the next Bible around most Jewish people? Not a chance. He went ahead, he got two of his students, Rabbeinu Yona of Gerona, who wrote the Shari Tshuva, who has a famous commentary on the, on the Talmud and other things, one of his students, and a second student, Dovin ben Shaul, and they put a ban on the Rambam's works, all of them, okay? and those who study them. Several rabbis of Ashkenazic northern France signed on. Now, basically, you know, go back to America, go back to democracy. Imagine some, you know, radical liberal senator in California, for example, uh, banned the Constitution because they didn't like what the Constitution said. They didn't like the Fifth Amendment, they didn't like Article 4, and they didn't like Article 2, Section 5. And they banned the Constitution. They, they make a law banning the Constitution. Okay, well, the conservative radio host would have a field day. But it would also cause a storm wherever you are. What do you mean you're banning the Constitution? Who are you? How dare you? The Constitution. It would cause, and this is what happened. Because they banned the Rambam. You know what the Rambam was? You know what the Rambam was? They, this created a firestorm. Even as great, you know, Menahar was not a small person. He was a great scholar. His students, Rabbi Yonah, was a great scholar. And it created a firestorm. So the, the, the rabbis of the other areas of Provence put a chayim and excommunication on Rabbi Yonah, on Rabbi Shlomo Menahar, and Rabbi Dabba Ben Shlomo, they excommunicated them. Now, when, they, when, when the northern French rabbis saw what's going on, they said, we're out of here, we want nothing to do with this. They left town. They got nothing involved in this. But Shlomo Nahar said, no, this is a danger. This book is going to mislead people. And he antagonized and antagonized against it. And eventually, the controversy became so out of hand that they went to the Dominican monks, which was always a bad idea. You never get third parties, in this case, anti-Semitic you know, Catholic theologians who at the time were rapidly anti-Semitic. Um, and on a certain day of 1230, they said that the Rambam Maimonides had anti-Christian passages. And they burnt the works of the Rambam in a public square in Paris. Okay? The news of this event filled Jews with heart. They really burnt... Remember, we have to remember, the Maimonides wasn't... You know, they, they didn't know who Maimonides were. Here they thought they were burning the most prominent Jew of all's works. They were burning Maimonides' work. They ever knew who Maimonides was. He was a household name. I mean, who doesn't know Einstein today? Who knows who? You know, Einstein is a popular name. It's world, it's, and he was greater than Einstein. Much more, you know, well-known than Einstein. But everyone, they knew whose works they were burning on here. Burning all Jewish works. This filled the Jews with horror. And basically, put Shlom in a horror and his students under the gun. People tried to defend them. But in 1242, a remarkable thing happened. A tragic thing happened. And that is, in the very same square in Paris, King Louis the Pious, Louis the Pious, ordered that all of the Talmuds of France, all the Jewish holy books they can get their hands on, all the works of Torah they can get their hands on, should be burnt because they're anti-Christian. Now, once you start burning the works of the foremost Jewish sage, why not go to the Talmud? They burnt it in the same spot 
in the same area 11 years later in Paris. In that same area, they burnt it. And they, you have to remember the tragedy of this. Basically, it shut down all the schools in France. This is before the printing press. These were handwritten books. It took hours and hours and days and days for each folio, you know, for each folio of the Thomas to be printed, to be, to be handwritten. There is a kinna. There is a lamentation that we say on Tishabov about this event. And this sped up the leaving of the Jews of France and as we'll discuss in the future lecture the moving of this Torah scholarship from Western Europe to Eastern Europe. We mentioned last lecture with the Black Plagues and the blood libels. That was a partial reason. This was a partial reason um, as well. The burning of the Talmud in the same spot had a sobering effect on the Jews. Rabbeinu Yonah, who had been one of the three signers of the original excommunication himself, saw the hand of God. It was remarkable. I mean, this is a person who had walked around preaching against the Rambam, Maimonides, and the danger of his works, now walked around doing the exact same thing, asking for repentance. So much so that he wrote one of the classic works in Judaism called Shari Tshuva, The Gates of Repentance, promised to go to the Rambam's grave in um, Tiberius and asked for forgiveness. Now they stopped him by Toledo. They, they told him to be Rosh Hashim. He was a great genius. And he never got there. But this, to an extent, ended round one. But it wasn't completely dead. And Rishul Manahar himself had not given up because he really felt, he felt there was a danger. It wasn't, it wasn't a personal thing. He looked at these works as dangerous because they were in a very philosophical world. And when you got the world of philosophy, you have people, you know, using philosophy for de- over-rationalizing things. Okay? And there would be one great figure who would really end the bickering of the camps. And that was the Ramban, Nachmanides. Who was Nachmanides? The Ramban was also known as Moshe ben Nachman Mikirondi. His acronym, Ramban or Nachmanides, he was born in 1194 and died in the land of Israel in 1270. He was a leading medieval Jewish scholar, rabbi, philosopher, doctor as well, Kabbalist, and biblical commentator. After Rambam and Rashi, he was arguably the most influential Rishon. Okay. His contributions in scholarship covered every area of Jewish law. His Talmudic commentary was on the Talmud. It was famous. He combined the French school of analysis with the Spanish school on emphasis on halacha. He wrote works defending Al-Fat, the Rif against the Balmor and the Ravid, and the Bahag against the Rambam. He wrote books on Torah Adam on the laws of death and mourning. He wrote a book at Abtam at the afterlife called Sharha Gamul. He wrote books on, on, on Kohelis, on Torah, and he had a famous disputation with Pablo Christiani in the year 1263, which hopefully we'll get to. His commentary on the, on, on the Bible is probably, after Rashi, the most famous commentary. Some even give it more importance at a certain level, not as an explanatory, but as a deeper level. Okay, his exposition is intermingled with agotic and mystical interpretations and, and very careful analysis of the Bible. And throughout his work, he slams Aristotle. He says, shots at Aristotle. Okay, 
Um, of course, the Ramban is famous, certainly in Zionist circles, as somebody who felt that there is a continual commandment to live in the land of Israel. Ramban, the Rambam, Maimonides did not hold that way. Interestingly, Maimonides traveled to Israel, ends up settling in Egypt. The Ramban, after being exiled from Spain, will move to Israel and die in Israel. The Ramban also studied um, uh, philosophy, didn't agree with a lot of it, and he was a physician. Okay? The Ramban also, throughout his works, has a common um, theme. And that is he constantly protects the words of the early sages, the Go'onim. They were unquestionable. Their words were to be neither doubted nor criticized. To quote him, We bow, he says, before them, and even when the reason for their words is not quite evident to us, we submit to them. To them. Okay? Now, in 1238, now this is before the burning of the Talmud 1242. In 1238, Nachmanis was asked by Shlomo Menahar, Shlomo Menahar, who is the greatest antagonist of Ambam, who was being attacked by communities in Spain, and literally is, you know, one against the other. Very, you know, he's being attacked. He asked the Ramban, who was this great sage, back me up. And what the Ramban wrote is he first said, anyone who's attacking Shlomo Menahar, you have no business attacking him. He is greater than you. He is a great sage. How dare you besmirch him? How dare you come against him? But then he says, I have his tremendous respect. He takes the middle ground. He talks about his tremendous respect for the Rambam, Maimonides. And he says, if you realize who Maimonides was talking to, assimilated, confused, perplexed Jews, you wouldn't have such criticism. He's not talking to healthy Jews. Why was he giving these rational reasons? Because they needed it. But is it really our path? Is it really our darach? No. And he said, immediately you should stop all bans against anyone who has bans against the Rambam's work. And he said, though, be careful not to get too overly influenced by philosophy. By the time the next controversy of the Maimonides' works came up about 50 years later, and about philosophy as a whole, the Rambam was untouchable. His legacy had become so great. He, his fame had become so above and beyond that anyone who would have dared talk against the Maimonides was asking for trouble. And when Shlomo ben Petit, who was a Rav in Akko in 1285, tried to come against the guy to the perplexed, he got excommunicated and the works were not touched. Okay, so you literally had 50 years later a complete opposite reality. The Raman became unassailable. He became part of mainstream, or he was, which he was. In fact, the Ramah, Moshe Israelis, this great Ashkenazic sage, who starts the Ashkenazic interpretation of the Shulchan Aruch, when he starts his work, the Ramah on the Shulchan Aruch, what's his first class on the Shulchan Aruch? He quotes Maimonides' guide to the perplexed. The most authoritative word of Ashkenazic, what does he quote the Ramah saying? Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Tami. You know where that comes from? That's not a Pasuk. God should be in front of me always. That's a quote, a direct quote from the Rambam's Nur Nevuchim, God to the Plex. There's songs, people talk about it. That is a quote, not from anything but the concept is from the Talmud and the Torah. Right? You're putting God in front of you constantly. But the language, the quote itself, is from the Rambam's um, Nur Nevuchim. The legacy of the Rambam. 
As I mentioned, the Rambam is the bread and butter of every yeshiva. The greatest scholars delve into the words of the Rambam. The greatest later sages, such as the Salavitchuk family, the Or Sameach, Rav Shach, Rav Sozal Meltzer, all the great sages all have works on the Rambam, trying to understand where the Rambam is coming from. His philosophy continues to be quoted or misquoted by the left-wing movements at will. But he's quoted Leo Strauss. Anyone who heard of Leo Strauss? Founder of neoconservatism in America. And Leo Strauss quotes the Rambam at length. He was, not, he was a non-believer, by the way. Um, the Rambam, interestingly enough, is widely respected in Cordova, in Spain. He, they have a statue of the Rambam. They have a whole exhibit of the Rambam. This is the country he ran away from as a boy of, of 13. There is a famous quote, which was said about him in his lifetime, put on his grave and said today even, right? From Moshe, the son of Amun, we see the Torah on Mount Sinai, to Moshe, the son of Maimon, the author of the Mishnah Torah, there is none like unto Moshe, the son of Maimon. The short version is from Moshe to Moshe, there was none like unto Moshe. No man has ever been more deserving of the praise of the Rambam himself. No one, no one else did they say that about. That from Moshe to Moshe, there's no other, no other Moshe. His halakhic works, which became the legacy of the greatest scholar of all ages, the greatest scholars from the Vilma Goyen, with glasses on the Rambam, to Rabbi Yosef Cairo, with works on the Rambam, to the, the common man who wrote a book where even the common man could go ahead and read, making the intricacies and the beauty of the Talmud available to all. His philosophic works reached the upper classes intelligentsia, guiding them back to the path of Torah. He assumed the leadership of a Sephardic world which was under assault, under attack, where Torah scholarship was faltering. He fought the Karaites, which I discussed when I discussed the Karaites, I wasn't interested in reviewing that, but he was quashed the Karaites in, in Cairo and he gave hope to a persecuted people at one of the low points in history because the time of the Ram was also the time of the Crusades and if you would have looked at the world it would have looked bleak you had Jews being massively forced conversions in the Muslim world and you had a dangerous violently anti-Semitic Europe killing Jews for blood libels black plagues Crusades all around. And Ramam gave an optimism. He gave a hope. He said, try your hardest and well, there will be a better day tomorrow. There has been only one Rambam in the history of Israel. The Rambam's works and his legacy lives in every yeshiva and in every synagogue to our very own day. There was no other Moshe like this Moshe. I'd like in the remaining few minutes just since we discussed the Ramban and it's, it will be a good prelude to the next lecture. Next lecture will be on the Spanish Inquisition to discuss the disputation at Barcelona. <coughs> okay? Now, the Ramban himself was fortunate to, in general, have a very good life. He was away from contraries. He was teaching Torah. He was the head of Spanish Jewry. But when he was well advanced in his years, well advanced, almost 70 years old, he was pulled into something by a Jewish apostate named Pablo Christianity. Because in the year 1263, now remember this, insecure Jews are the greatest threat to Judaism. Okay? You know, insecure, I don't have to be Glenn Beck, but people like George Soros, you know, they endanger, people who are insecure about their, their, their Judaism 
the biggest pro-Palestinians on any campus in America are who? Jews. Tammy Benjamin, who's a professor in Santa Cruz, told me they had seven speakers at Palestine Day in the University of Santa Cruz. Six of them were Jews. Several of them Israelis. Agitating against Israel. You know why? Because a Jew who has a very little Jewish education is the most insecure. He has to prove himself. So you will see when we discuss the Spanish Inquisition, the biggest antagonizers of the Jewish people are Jews themselves very often. Who want to prove their worth to their Gentile neighbors. So Pablo Christiani becomes a Christian, tries to get to the church and says, oh, I can help you prove that the Judaism is false. That's anti-Christian. And not only that, I'm willing to bet I can prove it against the greatest Jewish sage of the generation, Nachmanides. Yeah, this is basically like, you know, a high school guy saying, I'll take on Michael Jordan one-on-one on the court. You know, arrogant and out of his mind, but that's what he challenged. Now, they were nervous, because Ramban was the greatest Jewish sage, and who was this Pablo Christiani? So they brought in all the Dominican friars and all the Franciscans to watch us and to give him help, to help him out along the way. And King James, the first of Aragon, is going to watch this. But he did something interesting, because usually, the debates historically, theological debates, were not debates. They were polemics. Basically, the Jews were forced to be on the defense, never able to be on the offense, had to be very PC in a very anti-Semitic, dangerous Christian world, where you at the mercy of the monarchy, which was at the mercy of the church to a certain extent. Um, but in this debate, King James I gave the Ramban, Nachmanis, the opportunity to go on the offense as well. He says, this is an open debate. I would like to hear what you have to say. And this debate would go on for four days, July 20th to 24th, in, a- in Aragon in the year 1263. The three major subjects, this is translated into English, you can buy it, it's probably even on the internet, I imagine. The three major subjects um, discussed were whether the Messiah had appeared, whether the Messiah announced by the prophets was to be considered as divine, or as a man born of human parents, and whether the Jews or the Christians were in the possession of the one true faith. Now, Christianity started out advancing the thoughts that the Pharisee sages believed the Messiah was in the Talmudic period, he was alive already at their time, and ostensibly, therefore, the, the Messiah was Jesus. So, the Ramban, by the way, if you ever deal with a missionary, it's, it's, I, 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 as somebody who has had, I don't, I don't do this for fun, I don't do this for a living, you know, but as someone who's experienced it, it's always misinterpretation. They, first of all, they don't know primary texts. They can't read Hebrew. They have, like, you know, cards where they practice, usually, or they have, like, 12 lines they know. They don't know the rest of the corpus of the Bible. Usually they know their things very well, their arguments, you know, the point, this verse in Isaiah and this verse in Isaiah, mistranslated, misquoted, misunderstood. But if you already speak to them, if you start pushing them on the prominent text, you, you know, they're not going to be successful. And then Ramban pummeled him on these texts that he had misquoted. Um, and, not, and then after he pummeled Christianity in the text, he went on the offense. And Ramban said to him as follows, he says, you want to talk about biblical texts? Doesn't the Bible say the Messiah comes with peace onto earth? Doesn't, isn't the Messiah supposed to have a wolf and a lamb sitting together? Peace on earth. Since the Christians have come to the world, there's been more bloodshed than ever before. More blood killed in the name of God than ever before. You, is this the Messiah you talk about? And then Ramban then went to talk about the Messiah as a human being, not a man of divinity. And he doesn't, he's not a person who changes the Bible. 
And he said it's incredulous to believe that, that you believe a human being could be God. Look at source number four. Now imagine, by the way, he's saying this in a room with the king of Aragon, King James I, who was a very, very religious Catholic, filled with Dominican and Franciscan friars as well. So he says, it seems most strange. The creator of heaven and earth resorted to the womb of a certain Jewish lady, grew up there for nine months, and was born as an infant, and afterwards grew up and was betrayed into the hands of his enemies, who sentenced him to death and executed him, and then afterwards he came to life and returned to his original place. The mind of a Jew or any other person simply cannot tolerate these assertions. You have listened all of your life to the priests who have filled your brain and the marrow of your bones with this doctrine, and it has settled into you because of this, that accustomed habit. I would argue that if you're ever hearing these ideas for the first time now, as a grown adult, you would never accept that God came to a human being, was nursed, you know, gets killed by murder by, by people. It, it, it's, it's incredulous, the whole story. And then he noted that, um, you know, that, that, you know, the whole concept of Messiah, it's not as dogmatic as you think it is. You know, we can live with Jews without the Messiah, we're, we're connected to God. And now this argument, as the days are gone, the Jews are getting nervous. This is, you know, imagine you're, you're the Jewish people watching that. But the Ramban is really taking the, the forefront of it, and they try to get him out. Um, but the king, James, insisted this debate continue. And at the end of the debate, King James I of Aragon declared Nachmanides the winner. He gave him 300 gold coins um, and remarked that he never encountered a man while yet being wrong argues so well for his position. Now, the Dominicans were not happy. They were really not happy. And Pablo Cristiani himself started, oh, well, well, he really didn't win. So Rabban decided, I'll write out the whole debate. He wrote out the whole debate in, in Hebrew and disseminated it to the masses. Read the debate yourself. Give me the whole thing. So then, Pablo Kirishan and the Dominicans came running to King James. He has anti-Christian polemics going around Spain. So they had a trial of the Ramban. And in the trial, the Ramban says that he did nothing, he did nothing that he, or wrote nothing that wasn't said at the debate. And King James I by then was under serious duress, not only by the Dominicans, but by the Pope, said, you're correct. So what he did is he sent the Ramban for, into exile for two years and confiscated the pamphlet, which, of course, you can't. Once the pamphlet's disseminated, you're not getting all the copies back, um, which is why we have it today, the disputation of Barcelona. The Dominicans were not happy, and he actually got Pope Clement IV um, to succeed in turning the two-year exile into a perpetual banishment. The Ramban Nachmanides went to Israel because he believed it was a mitzvah. He came to Jerusalem and there was no longer a quorum, a minion of Jewish people in Jerusalem because of the persecution of the Crusaders. He reestablished the Jewish community of Jerusalem. He talks in his writings how he reestablished the community, got people from Hebron and here, and he started a minion and built a synagogue. The Ramban synagogue, Nachmanides, was used for the 700 straight years until 1948, because it was in the old city, when the old city uh, was taken over by the Jordanians, that synagogue was used as uh, a place for animals. 
Okay, in the 1967, talk about Islamic uh, appreciation for Jewish holy sites. Um, in 1967, when the Jewish people reconquered Jerusalem, they re-inaugurated um, the synagogue of the Ramban. If you go to the old city, you can you can see it. The Ramban passed away at 70, the age of 76, and no one really knows where the Ramban is buried. Some can contend it was Haifa. Some contend that it was in Jerusalem. Others contend in Hebron. But really, this disputation of Barcelona really sets the stage for the next thing. And that is, the Jewish people in Spain, the largest, most powerful, most influential Jewish community, as Spain becomes more radically Catholic, and as all of Spain, because by 1263, only a small part of Spain was Muslim. That was Granada, which would fall in the year 1492. The Jews of Spain will become increasingly under tremendous pressures. Those pressures, and the grand finale of the Spanish Inquisition, we will discuss in the next lecture. Thank you very much.